You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Happy New Year, everyone. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and I hope you had a great time this past few weeks with friends and family. I'm ready to see what 2016 really has in store, but before we get into this week's interview, I want to talk about our sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. MailChimp, the best software out there for sending marketing emails, automated messages, and targeted campaigns. Join more than 10 million people who use MailChimp to design and send 600 million emails every day. Sign up today at MailChimp.com. When you have a great idea, you want to secure a great domain name for it, and that's really where Hover comes in. Of course, this is the beginning of the year. There's probably big, great, wonderful new projects and sites that you want to take on, and Hover makes it easy for you to find that domain name that you want and get it up and running with no hassle and no heavy-handed upselling. So go ahead and grab yourself a domain today. Use our promo code REVISIONPATH and save 10% off your purchase. Now, over the holiday break, we got a new review on iTunes. This comes from RayRay10799 and it's titled Awesome Resource. This review is short and to the point. I like this. It says, Enjoy the insight and stories. Thanks so much, RayRay10799. Again, for those of you that are out there listening, I love to get these reviews on iTunes. Not only does it help bump Revision Path up in those iTunes rankings, but it just lets me know who out there is listening and what you like about the show. So please leave a review, leave a five-star rating, and I'll read your review right here on the show. So here's our Patreon fundraising campaign update. We've got a bit of a dip after the holidays, so we're at 25 patrons right now for a combined total of $166.05 per month. Again, a huge thanks for everyone that has already pledged their support and appreciation for the show. If you want to become a patron of Revision Path and get access to some really great perks like special giveaways, early access to future episodes, and free Revision Path swag, head on over to patreon.com forward slash revision path and make that happen. Pledge levels are super affordable. They start at just $1 per month, and it's a great way to support the show on a regular basis. Now for this week's interview. I talked with Mario Moorhead, a software architect in Baltimore, Maryland. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Mario Moorhead. I am a software architect. I make things with digital tools and logic. That's what I do. Talk to me about kind of when you first got the the knack for, for programming and for software. Where did that start? You know, I've always been a deep thinker, I suppose. Not really a deep thinker, but I've always been, you know, very curious in scientific method and these kind of things, as well as I do remember from an early age being very attracted to the opposite sex, you know, girls. So I had gone a very long time. It was about uh, eighth grade. Yeah, I, uh, you know, that frustration of not quite being able to speak to girls led me into the computer lab. One of my fellow nerds led me in. That was, I couldn't even say what date it was. It must have been the, um, that was around the time of like the Apple II. Okay. The Apple IIe. Basically, there were no color screens. It was, you know, either amber or green. The days of logo, basic. Punch cards were no longer around, but uh, magnetic tape, cassette tapes, actually saving programs on cassette tapes was like the height of technology. You know. I remember that, yeah. <laughs> the text-based games were going on like, not Ultima, but um, yeah. So that's when I started programming computers. That's when I started, yes. So a lack of being able to speak to girls drew you to programming. Well, I mean, I'm sure I would have gotten there anyway. <laughs> but somehow I always tie them together because it was a lot of just I had a lot of energy that I, you know, uh-huh. um, and being able to put that energy into something was really just life altering. My first computer was like a it was like a $35 computer from Radio Shack. It was like some kind of TRS not even an 80, you know, and I bought it with my paper route. And then I don't remember how, but shortly after that, I got a Commodore 64. And that was my computer that lasted me for years. That was an incredible machine. Started with BASIC, went in, it was making video games. Quickly realized BASIC was too slow because BASIC is like a interpreted language. So I started doing assembly language. And I remember the first time I ran my assembly language program, whereas 
the sprites before it would move across the screen, like, you know, pretty slow. When I ran it in a similar language, it was, you couldn't even see the motion. I mean, a, moving from left to right was just a line. <laughs> it was like, mm-hmm. you know, the difference in speed between a core language and, a, you know, basically a lower level language and a higher level language. Basic is a high level language because it's kind of like HTML, whereas you're writing things that are very English-like. So it's almost conversational. However, all of those things have to be reinterpreted and broken down into something the computer more closely understands. So, yes, it's not mach- it's not binary. No one ever programs in binary, but a similar language is just one step above that. Okay. And so did you continue with this on through high school as well? I did. I did. Not as much because in high school, I well, right before high school, but definitely in yeah, after the first year of high school, I figured out how to talk to girls. So that became a distraction. Ah. That was a bit of a distraction, <laughs> I must say. You know, I but however, and you know, we'll talk about my other wonderful talents later on in the interview, but whenever the mind learns something, it changes, it shifts its pers- perspective of everything else beyond that. So that programming sensibility, that sensibility of looking at a problem and breaking it down into its pieces and building steps that will get you to that solution no matter what the conditions are branching and this kind of stuff so that was really that always stayed with me and i really got into music so that was when hip-hop was really getting happening so you know i was full on into that into college uh i was into a band for 10 years however in college i definitely was programming again because i started working picking up jobs using my programming skills so yeah in high school, not so much. But after that and till now, yes. Were you an MC? Absolutely. No doubt, son. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> what? What? I was nice, man. <laughs> so I want to talk about kind of your educational path because you had a really interesting one based on what I saw from your, your LinkedIn profile. You first started out at Parsons, right? Mm-hmm. What were you studying at Parsons? Full disclosure. It wasn't actually Parsons. It was the new school. However, the new okay. school for social research is also connected to the Maine's Music Academy and uh, Parsons. So, gotcha. and of course, I did take some classes there, but it was specifically the new school, the new school for social research in Greenwich Village, which is right across the street from Parsons. But w- the reason it was specifically that out of those three different kind of institutions that were bound together is that the new school allowed me to do a bachelor's where I had no master's. I just took whatever courses I wanted to. So I, okay. you know, so I took anthropology. I took all their physics and chemistry classes that they had. I even talked with them and they allowed me to go to CUNY schools. So I went to like Brooklyn College and the other one just to take science and math classes because mm-hmm. I, they weren't any more available at the new school. And, you know, I also took filmmaking classes and photography and that kind of stuff. So it was really cool for me because as an artist, I could choose what I wanted to study. It wasn't like I was going for any particular master's because... You know, it's, it's interesting because I actually started at Long Island University. I accepted Long Island University's whatever when I applied to colleges in high school. I also got accepted to Hampton, but I didn't get accepted to Howard, which is where I really wanted to go. And my boy, my best friend, he did not get accepted to Hampton. He got accepted to Howard. So we both decided to go to LIU because they offered us a lot of scholarships. Mm-hmm. But after a half of semester, I transferred over to the new school. <laughs> Okay. So it sounds like you kind of created this interdisciplinary kind of curriculum for yourself because you took all these different classes at all these different schools and stuff. Well, at LIU, I was actually majoring in something. I was majoring in communications. So I was, you know, I worked with the TV station and, you know, we were editing. And that's when you were editing. Basically, the height of technology was you'd make in and out points. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You'd have two tapes in, you know, three tapes in and you'd make in and out points and then you could run it and join it all together. So you didn't have to actually splice it. So, you know, doing that, doing AV events, but I just didn't like the school. I didn't, I mean, no shots at Long Island University. It's a wonderful institution, but you know, I wanted to be into something bigger and the new school and Parsons and Mainz was, was big. So, and also I really liked it because it didn't really have a campus. I mean, it had a campus, but it wasn't like, I didn't have to stay in a dorm. So, you know, we, yeah. we basically got an apartment and actually we had a whole building because that was the beginning of Brooklyn. So like you could get stuff really cheap. But yeah, so it was, you know, it was, it was nice because it wasn't like, I didn't really make friends on campus so much. I made friends 
being a musician and playing gigs and running an art gallery, I didn't have to have the social aspect in the college. So that was cool because it was in, it was in Manhattan. Everybody's doing their thing, you know, so that yeah. was great. So you ran an art gallery, too, while you were in school? Not when I was in school, after we graduated. After okay, I graduated, I yeah, you. that's later. I believe it's in the resume, um, Thought Forms Underground. Yeah, that's okay. now we're getting into the 90s. I started college in 89, I believe. Graduated in like 93, 94. So like 95, that's when we started the, the gallery thing. But after I graduated, well, actually, while I was in college, I worked for a company called We Apply. And it was they basically made college applications on three and a half inch disc or actually no i think they were five and a quarter that was still five and a quarter floppies on disc so you could basically it allowed you to put this into your computer and fill out the college form kind of like in a, a form an interactive form you know very very basic but normally to, to apply to a college you would have to put in you'd have to do each form manually and you'd have to actually fill it out with a pen so the we apply situation, you know, you could put in your basic information and it would autofill that. So, you know, whatever. So that was like my first like technology job. <laughs> and that was sort of right when you were out of college that you were doing that? Yeah, that was like, uh, yeah, that was right out of college. And then after that, you ended up going to Pace, got a master's in education. Well, that was actually a bit later. Um, that was a bit later. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was definitely later. That was after I was married. I didn't do that until okay. I was married. So, all right. So, listeners, right now, we're after college. We've gotten our bachelor's degree. What will they do next? We formed a band. We formed a band called, uh, it went through a couple different names, eventually became Survival Sounds. But basically, I lived, it was myself and my best friend who had come with me from St. Croix. We had a, basically a studio in Brooklyn. It was on Spencer Avenue between, <laughs> what was it, between Willoughby and Myrtle. No, between Myrtle and Lafayette or, or whatever it is. So we're there and it's like, that was kind of the wild days of New York. You know, it was like, you know, artists just kind of doing their thing. And so yeah. we had basically two apartments. It was basically the whole floor. The garage was rented out to uh, auto people. They would change all the time. We had an industrial heater. Like it was totally not to code, bro. It was, like, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, we were paying like $500 a month, you know, and we had, you know, like this big iron gate that we could open up and it went out into the roof of the garage. So we had wow. two apartments and, you know, the whole garage space. So it was awesome. We were originally in high school, we were rhyming and, you know, we we're trying to do raps that way. Once we got to New York, we booked some studio time and we started doing, working on an album, but doing samples. So we did the samples and we brought in singers and it was really good. I mean, we, it was great. We got like, you know, Greg Allman from the Allman Brothers came down and, and recorded on one of the songs. Mudbone from, from Funkadelic came down mm -hmm. and sang on some things. We also got Africa Baby Bam from Jungle Brothers. He came down and did some stuff as well. And we finished the album, but we never really got it out. And it was, it was very frustrating making music with samples because we're going through an engineer and like, you know, hey, sample this and blah, blah, blah. And we didn't really have our own equipment. And so we just, you know, and, and studio times were expensive. So we just said, we just, we're going to stop at the studio and we just bought instruments. We just bought instruments and all we did all day was play instruments. We would, <laughs> we'd make money by, um, we'd go out with like a, a food cart and we'd sell like healthy snacks and sandwiches and fruit and stuff. <laughs> we'd do that for like five hours and then the rest of the, our waking time was just playing music. So, you know, over a period of a couple months, we went from never really playing an instrument to getting pretty proficient. And Tess Fazwadi came through. And he was doing his guitar. So now we had a real musician. And then before you know it, the horn players came in and we had a five, six piece band. And, you know, that's when we started the whole thought form thing. It was a gallery. We, we were basically doing events around New York. And at that time, as a musician, musicians would undercut other musicians. So they would play for just about nothing. So if you have a band, I mean, there's certain expenses. It's not very expensive, but you need to be able to play people who pay people who are in your band to do a, you know, a gig. And, yeah. you know, it'd be like $10 or a plate of food. And because, you know, it's New York. Everybody wants to get on. So it got very frustrating. And then you'd, you'd get booked with some other band that was a total different genre. Like, <laughs> like there's no way somebody <laughs> who likes them would like us. Not No shots of them. Basically, that problem of artists not valuing their art and kind of lowering the bar. You know, kind of a race to the bottom. It makes it very difficult to really do a band or, or any kind of art because it, there's a budget that has to come into. I'm going to devote my life to this art. I mean, I've got to eat, I've got to pay my rent, 
So, um, you know, basically we got together with another guy, Malik Youssef, and we ran this art gallery together. I mean, it had three different divisions. So there was the music studio that my, my boy Jamaki, who was the, uh, the guy in my band, he ran the recording studio. He would bring in other, you know, work, bring people in to do sessions. Malik would do the, the gallery space, basically the putting up shows and getting people to come in to rent the space, you know, fashion shows rehearsals, whatever have you. And then I ran the computer lab. So I bring in third party work, you know, doing websites for people, doing videos, whatever have you. And all three of these divisions would put, you know, a, most of the money that we made into paying the rent. Once the mm -hmm. rent was there, everybody could get more money off of what they were getting, as well as we did that one monthly event called the Avant Yard, where there was a show up, you know, so there was artwork up where, you know, would feature, you know, a few different artists there would be at least one artist that would actually be doing live painting, live art, whatever have you, kind of performance art, if you will. There was a, you know, show, a music show. There'd be two or three bands. Our band would always be there. We'd do a set and we'd have two other bands. And the thing is that at that time, there were so many things going on in New York, so many events, so many flyers being given out. And we realized that if we made the flyer really captivating, the image on the front of the flyer, color, and then the back has all the information you know, in the front just has the branding of the Avant Yard and Joshua Humphreys was part of the unit. So he, you know, he did the logo and basically branded ourselves and we would pay to print up like 5,000 um, of these flyers and we would go out and give them out. Anyone that was part of the, that monthly event, all of the artists, they would get a stack of flyers. You know, they'd go out and they'd promote it themselves. All of the bands that we had working, they'd all promote it. We'd promote it. And it worked out really, really well. Worked out really, really well. You know, most Def came through. Black Thought from Roots come through. Dead Prez came through a few times. You know, it really turned into quite an interesting thing. It's interesting. There's a lot of kind of New York creative folks, particularly that are working in tech now, that got their start in music in some sort of way. That's a really interesting kind of corollary there. But I mean, you're a musician. The people that I'm speaking with, I think they probably were doing maybe flyers or stuff like that. But it's interesting how those two things kind of played off of each other for you. That's really the whole thing I'm about, you know, um, is that science, math, technology is art. Science and art are the same. Like, I don't know at what point in civilization we split that. Science is looking at the world and like, how can I make it better? How can I understand it? That's art. <laughs> you know, so that artistic that goes into music, that goes into programming. And, you know, music is basically just math. It's, it's basically math. It's time signature. It's math. You know, so yeah. it's like and patterns. And, you know, so and to me, technology is the same, you know, so transitioning is not not really that big of a deal. But I think that especially now with startups and with so many new technologies kind of coming out, because I was there when the Web first happened, you know, that whole mm -hmm. goal rush to the Web when, you know, the animated GIF came out, when backgrounds came out, when like the, <laughs> the beginning of the, the World Wide Web, not the Internet but the World Wide Web where people put up web pages. <laughs> there was a time yeah. where hardly anyone did it. So I was, I mean, people would pay me ridiculous amounts of money to do <laughs> the simplest things because no one was doing it. It was a beautiful time, but I think we're kind of in that time as well. Again, it's not quite as lucrative, but it is. I mean, it just, you have to have a better idea because we've got all these wearables, we've got all of these, you know, smart things, and we've got all this communication that's going in between places. And it's a beautiful time to be alive, man. Now, you know, kind of speaking of design, you did also end up going to FIT for exhibition design. Was that kind of tied into the work that you did when you started the gallery? Like, was that kind of a natural evolution there? Well, I mean, in undergrad, I took photography. You know, when I started undergrad, I was with the AV department. So we were doing the TV station, which and the only reason we did it is because it allowed us to make our own films. You know, we made like five films like when we were our first semester. Were your parents really supportive of the work that you were doing? The reason I ask is because you mentioned that you came from St. Croix, yes, right? Yes, I came from the Caribbean, yes. I was born in St. Croix, U.S. Virgin Islands. My mother is from North Carolina, Charlotte, and my father is from St. Croix. So okay. while I was born in St. Croix, I went there until kindergarten, first grade through third grade. I was in Charlotte, North Carolina in that public school. And then I went back down to St. Croix, and then I went back down up to North Carolina. And then I stayed in St. Croix from eighth grade on. Um, okay. From ninth grade on, actually. So, yeah, so there was that back and forth. My parents are very interesting people. 
I love them both. They don't particularly love each other. They love each other, but they respectfully are divorced. So mm-hmm. <laughs> my father is uh, kind of a revolutionary kind of, you know, Pan-Africanist kind of guy, you know, um, an author. Professionally, he's an author. He's written about five or six books. Okay. Very, very incredibly intelligent person. So he always, anything that I did intellectual, he always supported. And my mother is the same way. My mother was more of an artist, actually. She was a performing artist. She was a dancer. She was, you know, she was doing all of her stuff. My father, more intellectual, academic, and my mother, more artist. So between the two of them, they were both fine. I mean, with as long as I'm, you know, doing something constructive. You know, my father would all, would. I remember when I went to college, <laughs> he was like, all right, you're always talking about making these businesses. He's like, I want to make sure you understand the definition of a business is that it makes more money than it costs. Like, <laughs> if it doesn't make more money than it costs, son, it's not a business. It's a liability. That's all I'm going to tell you. So, yeah. That's a great definition. <laughs> yeah, he's That's that kind of person. Definition. His approach to learning. Any report card I got, if I got anything less than a B, it was a problem. And that happened to quite a few times. When I went to college, he was like, you just need to get these two pieces of paper. He didn't particularly care what college I went to. It's just like, mm-hmm. you just got to get your undergrad and your master's. And then you do whatever you want. I got my undergrad and then I was a musician for a while and then I got two masters. So, you know, when I decided not to go directly into my master's after my bachelor's, that's when there was a rift between my father and I. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. But he still did send me $500 a month. Yes. So that was good. Shout out to dad. Yeah, shout out to dad for real, for real. (laughs) (laughs) So walk me through kind of like a typical day of what you do now, because I, I believe you mentioned in your bio that you're doing some work with Sapient. Is that right? Yeah, I actually at the moment, I actually work full time for Sapient. OK, Sapient is an amazing company. They were just recently acquired by Publicis, which mm-hmm. is a French company that owns uh, Razorfish, which is an incredible design studio based in New York, as well as Second Story, which is an amazing kind of experience. Well, basically, they're like that exhibition design. Getting that degree I, really helped me understand that whole thing. And I'm just going to quickly diverge. but um, And then you'll probably have to help me to get back to where I was. But okay. with the whole exhibition design, the reason that I did that, which is also the reason that I have a master's in education, is because as an artist and as a developer, I'm creating an experience. And so with the master's in education, I was able to really spend a lot of time learning how humans learn and take in information. And, and how their faculties work to illusions and how they experience things and, and wayfinding and all these kind of things. And the same thing with f- exhibition design. That was taking my programming from a two-dimensional tablet device or computer to actually a spatial situation where you, know, you have kiosk and you have walking on surfaces that may light up or that may react to body temperature or weight or these kind of things like creating an exhibition. Which is also the same thing when you're making a store. What do you want them to feel as they walk in? How do you pull them into the downstairs? So now they're they're bound to buy something, you know, that whole kind of thing. So that all kind of ties together into that. And that's why I made those steps. But parents definitely, shout out to moms and dads. They support it. So typical day like for you. Yeah. So the typical day is I I work for Sapient. So the typical day is I commute from Baltimore to D.C. About a two-hour commute each way. I come in and I work. We were working on the NHLBI project. That's when I was working with some, doing some government contracts, Drupal-based, interacting with a lot of other services and APIs. You know, really not that interesting, not something I'd really, really want to talk about. The way my company works, though, is that you move from project to project. So as of last week, I'm off of that project and now I'm on the bench. So when you're on the bench, you have the time to just basically do anything you want to do. So in that time, I've been really Hmm. looking at the meme stack and I built up kind of a simple site, you know, and just kind of really having my mind blown at the difference between a meme stack and a lamp stack. So, however, in addition to that, my day also includes when I'm not working and my weekends, my wife actually just recently put out a book and I know the name sounds a little crazy. It's uh, called P is for Pussy. Okay. pussy.com It is actually a children's book. It is a children's picture book on the alphabet. So B nice. is for blow, C is for cock. You know, it's uh, beautifully illustrated. You know, she's pushing the book now, so it's that's really exciting. I was able to make the website for her and work with the illustrator and her and the publicist on all of that. So, you know, it's great when I can use my skills in other ways. 
as well as I am working on this political mashup website to engage people more into the political process. But I have two kids, so, you know, much of my typical day is typical. Every now and then it's not. Are your kids interested in design or encoding or anything like that? No, no, not really. No, no, I'm trying. But, uh, well, I do have them into music, so they are playing music. We have a large house, which is why we moved from Brooklyn to Baltimore, because we're able to uh, have a lot more space. And so we've got a drum set, keyboards, everything set up downstairs. Try to encourage them. But kids are their own thing. You know, I just try to, you know, show them the stuff that I'm working on and stuff that I've done. And But you can't. Your parents aren't cool. <laughs> I, you know, whatever they do is good. I'm just trying to identify exactly what it is they want to do so I can support it. So you're kind of doing like Mario and the family band, that kind of thing? Oh, yeah. Definitely. 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 <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I'm interested to know about the, the political mashup site. Specifically because, of course, we're now in this kind of the the heat of this crazy mixed up campaign season. Talk to me about that site. It is a site that is way too long coming. It is a site that I started working on in like 2013 with a good friend of mine, uh, Eben Heath, who is an amazing graphic designer, graphic artist. There's so many parts of my story I leave out because I can't can't get to all to all of it. But back in the band days, the days of Triple Five Soul. He was actually the lead designer and all of that. And we were like, you know, best friends as well as with Camilla Elkier and all of that. That was all part of the band days. But we've always stayed friends. And, you know, we were talking about a way to make the political process more more interesting, more interactive. We're really lamenting the state of apathy. This was, I think, this was before Obama got elected. This was actually mm-hmm. during that that time. But, you know, really kind of shook into our core with the whole... George W.'s second election, you know, against John Kerry and the way that they were able to, in this time of war, that this war vet could have been slapped down by someone who didn't even go to war, like for any other reason. But that swift voting thing was just, wow, we are in the future, bro. This is like, mm-hmm. they, I mean, they're just, this is just so not true. This is like, I mean, this defies logic. Like, how is this happening? So, um, you know, we kind of got into the talking about, you know, social media, Twitter, Facebook and all these things. And we basically came up with a site that would allow you to just kind of graphically like look at your representatives. So the site is not really up now. It's not a public URL. Still working on it, looking to actually move it to the mean stack because that might make it actually a little more efficient. But essentially, you're able to say, like, show me all female black senators. And it'll, and it'll show you it'll, like two people, maybe? No, it would show you no people. There are no oh. black female senators. There are two okay. black senators, uh, Tim Scott on the Republican side, from representing from mm-hmm. South Carolina, and Cory Booker on the New Jersey side, representing for the Democrats. And before, what, two years ago? There were none. There were none. Yeah. Both of them just came in. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, you know, anyway. Yeah. So, or more importantly, a more interesting approach would be to say white men in the Senate. As you know, the Senate is 100 people. I believe it'll show you that there's 77. And it's basically a grid. It pulls up a grid of, of a uh, profile picture of all of them. Because as a representative, you have to have a publicly available image as well as basic information about yourself. So I tap into the Sunlight Labs API. They have a political API for Congress that allows you to basically call on it and pull in this information. So it, that's how it keeps all the information up to date. If you click on someone, it will kind of open up a window and allow you to see their – you have tabs. So you can see their Twitter, their Facebook, and some information about them as well as vote on them. You know, so we're kind of playing around with maybe you, know, you rate certain people or you like certain people and bringing it to the point where you know, you'll actually be able to see certain bills. I'm not describing it well, but essentially it attacks the notion that we have a representative government. And mm-hmm. we do – because everyone in Congress represents, I don't know, 400,000 people or whatever have you. We have that because everyone, every individual citizen can't vote on every bill. That's just not, you know, that's, that's not going to happen. However, it could be a little more of that now that we have social media, now that we have computers and networks and all these things. Like, we think people might be interested in that. If there was an easy way for them to, to get that information. Hey, I'll put in my zip code. Oh, this is my representative. This is my senator. Oh, these are the bills that they're on. Oh, this is where they, how they lean, maybe left to left to right or whatever have you, and be able to lobby them in a simple way. Send them a tweet or send them a put a post on their Facebook page to because it it doesn't matter who wins, they still represent you. 
So if you voted for a candidate and that candidate didn't win, the candidate that did win, they'll be holding to you. That's what democracy is all about. It's actually a beautiful thing. But we don't really – we don't do that. The only people who lobby these people are <laughs> corporations. Why yeah. don't regular people lobby? So this is – we're trying to build a tool that will let them do that. Make a long story long. <laughs> no, I like that. That's a, that's a good idea. I like that notion of kind of using design and technology to kind of solve and combat kind of real-world issues. Because sure. there's only so many you know, polyfills and frameworks and things that you can work on. Which don't get me wrong. That stuff is good too. Mm-hmm. But also being able to use those skills to influence the world around us uh, is a really beautiful thing. Yeah, I think so. Well, and this is where, well, again, we get back to that touchstone, which is design and technology, creativity, science, art, all of these things are one. (laughs) All of these things are one. I mean, you know, it's like, and I just like to briefly talk about why this is so important and why people have to start thinking like this and trying to teach their children like this and, and teachers teaching like this, because there's so many problems in our modern world that are really simple to at least try to fix. We have a tender. You can go on tender and swipe left to right. Why can't we have that for recording a pothole or calling the police or paying your taxes or a parking ticket or paying for your parking meter? Or, you know, why don't we make these things simple? And why don't we make the records of, well, how many people rode the subway today and, and how much did it cost and what's the budget? All of these things need to be transparent so yeah. that we can open source, if you will, <laughs> our transportation system, our police system, our all of these things. They can be done just simple steps. You know, the way electricity is delivered to our house, we should be getting AC and DC because 25% of our electricity is being burnt up, transferring it from AC to DC. All of our gadgets work on DC. With Elon Musk, who I must admit, I never thought I would have, one of my favorite people in the world would be a white South African person. However, (laughs) Elon Musk is my hero. He's like the real Tony Starks. Forget the car and SpaceX, which SpaceX has been going pretty bad lately. But the yeah. battery that he just introduced, well, it was mm-hmm. about six months ago. But the, the home battery, you know, yeah, connected to your solar yeah. panels, charge your car. That's what I'm talking about. Simple little things like that. The Nest thermometer, thermostat, little things like that. It just makes everything better. Why is it How all do- profit driven? It's yeah. Everything is profit driven. How about just better driven? Do you feel like that's your philosophy as an artist and as a program and everything? Is Absolutely. Just to be better driven? Yes. Well, to be better driven and that connection to the world, to society, the social contract. People matter. Don't be an asshole. Sorry. I, I don't know if I, you can believe that. Don't, don't be a no, bad you person. Curse on, you, you know, you don't, curse don't on be a bad time. person. Yeah. Like those simple <laughs> things. Like, yeah, make better. Yeah, make better. That would, I could put my whole philosophy in two words, make better. Absolutely. What's been inspiring you lately? Well, like I mentioned, the mean stack. And I'm going to try to say this really quickly and succinctly. Normally, when you make a website, you have a LAMP stack because you need a server so that when somebody goes onto their web browser, they can make a request to that server. Usually, the, So the LAMP stack is Linux, which is the operating system, Apache, which is your web server, MySQL, which is your database, and PHP, which is your backend, your language. Now, mm-hmm. the LAMP stack is deceiving because there's no LAMP stack that doesn't include JavaScript. So it's really like a LAMP stack joke, whatever have you. So all of these disparate <laughs> things are making a website. So we've done this for a long time. I remember when I my first back-end language was ColdFusion. Uh, I remember I got an account with the, the New Jersey Foster Care Network, whatever. They had all these apartments, and they wanted everything, all the different apartments to have a, a terminal, basically, that would allow them to you know, tap into announcements, kind of a BBS. This was like before the, you know, the, the, yeah, the internet was there, but this was like a BBS system where they could, you know, say like, when is the trash going to be picked up, whatever have you. So it was a huge contract. It was like, it was more money than I want to mention right now because that was the golden age. But I used Cold Fusion and I used Cold Fusion instead of PHP was out at that time as well as ASP, but PHP was open source. And at that point, open source was still a little touch and go. And this was something that I needed to work and be secure. So I use Cold Fusion, but needless to say, all of that is PHP or Cold Fusion. Or all, these are languages that basically say, hey, connect to the database. Give me this file. Okay, bring it in and throw it into an HTML page. Okay, so, you know, and then, of course, that HTML page needs JavaScript to make everything look good and move around and do all that cool stuff. So you've got all this, oh, hey, 
give me this and give me that and and transfer it and, and switch what form it is. You know, I pull in a record from the database. It's got all these fields. It's got a schema. So now I've got to translate that into something that makes sense. The mean stack, which is the M stands for MongoDB, which is a database, but it's a no SQL database. So there's no schema. There's no list of fields that's predefined. It's basically just by the seat of its pants. E stands for Express.js, which is basically allows you to do your server. It's, it pretty much takes the place of Apache. Then you have your uh, AngularJS, which is the A, and then you have your uh, Node.js. So these three components, which I must remind you, all JavaScript-based. I mean, Node.js is actually built in C, but you, everything you write is in JavaScript syntax. So basically, mm -hmm. the whole, entire thing is JavaScript. I don't have to send have PHP grab something from my SQL and then send it to JavaScript. It's JavaScript all over. So I just go, I can call directly to the MongoDB database. It comes back as JSON. I don't even have to break it down. I can just directly connect it to the output window. It's a radically different way of making these appliances, these web appliances. I mean, it's just, it's incredibly different. And it, it's really blowing my mind lately. Really blowing my mind. Now, you mentioned earlier that you're in Baltimore. You live in Baltimore. I do. What is the creative scene like there in Baltimore? For you, what is it like? Well, sorry, there's a plane flying overhead. <clears throat> it's okay. However, that plane is what Baltimore is. It is on the ascension. It is going flying up. Baltimore reminds me of Brooklyn 25 years ago. That's okay. why we moved to Baltimore. We believe in Baltimore. I think it's going to be awesome. The creative scene is interesting. I mean, it's small. It's, you know, broken apart. It's, you know, I... We've only been there for a year, so I'm still feeling it out. But there's really amazing stuff happening at Station North. Just last night, we were over at the Motor Lodge, which is right next to, across to what used to be Joe Squared. My sister-in-law won a grant for a screenplay that she's doing. So, But it's also in this space that is just opening up as an artist studio. So it's basically mm -hmm. a, like a seven-story huge building that is basically made up of all these different studios. So artists can apply and they can get studio space. So it's, you know, a really great kind of incubation kind of thing. It's coming up, but it's, you know, it's at the early stages. Uh, there's a lot of actually tech stuff happening in Baltimore as well. I, I think Beta Labs is one of them. But there's definitely some things happening. However, I make much more money in D.C. <laughs> so <laughs> I hate to say it. If I'm going to do the same amount of work, I'd like to get as much money as possible. Nothing wrong with that. You know, yeah. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that at all. So that's uh, there. Ergo, the four-hour commute. Four hours, yes. man. Who are some of the people that you admire? Who do you look to for inspiration for your work? Well, I mentioned Elon Musk. He's just inspiration mm -hmm. on just being a certain level of brilliance. But, you know, he doesn't inspire me in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, he was born into money. God bless him. But I'm more inspired by people who dealt with adversity. So it's interesting because I wasn't really a huge fan of Nick Cannon. I loved him in Drumline. <laughs> Never had anything against him, but I wasn't, you know, not a big fan of his stand-up. But I heard him on the Combat Jack show just recently. And, just, yeah. you know, it's interesting where the way you see certain celebrities and then when you actually listen to them, sometimes you're like, oh, you know what? Oh, you're pretty cool, man. You know, the adversity he dealt with. But, no, who inspires me? Salvador Dali inspires me. Che and Castro inspire me. Malcolm X inspires me. Martin Luther King inspires me. Gandhi inspires me. Haile Selassie inspires me. I don't worship him, but he inspires me. Intelligent people inspire me. Um, the the sister that that you know got shot by the Taliban. I mean, you know, just shining stars inspire me. And you cannot front on the fact that the people that are changing the world they are the underclass. So we really need to change our concept of class <laughs> and worth. Worth is not connected to your money. It's connected to what can you do to make the world better. You know, and if we can get better yeah. education, we can get a lot more of that, man. Like, we're still carrying weapons around. We still have war. We still have, you know, fossil fuels. Like, bro, we got to – seriously? <laughs> seriously, man? You know, people want flying cars. I'm like, dude, why can't I get on Amtrak in San Francisco at 1215 and take it directly to Boston at any time? Why don't we have national subway systems? You know, I mean, like, come on, man. And why aren't some of the cars of these subway systems carrying uh, freight? <laughs> You know, so that these trucks aren't on the road. I mean, well, we've got to think of the bigger picture, bro. Who have been some of your mentors? Have you had people that have kind of helped inspire your work? Like people that you know personally that have helped inspire your work? There's someone, Eli Koslansky. He is the 
owner and co-founder of Unified Field. Unified Field. He's inspired me. I actually, when I was doing my master's in exhibition design, I interned at his space. Danny Simmons has mentored me. He's been a friend for like 15, 20 years. Great thinker, uh, Greg Tate. He's a writer. He does writing for the Village Voice and others. Many people, you know, my father. I'm a critical thinker and I thirst for knowledge. So I'm always, you know, looking, reaching out to things and, 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 and people. But as the interview comes to a close, my mind starts to, you know, I have no idea. I can't think of any other names off the top of my head. What's the best advice that you've been given? It could be about your work. It could be about life, anything in general. Well, probably that you can't listen if you're talking, I think, is probably the best piece of advice. Because it's beyond just that. It really goes to the core of you have to listen. You have to – in programming, everything is a feedback loop. We check the state of something. We alter it. We check the state of something. We alter it. Life is like that. You've got to analyze where you are and always reassess. You've always got to assess where you are and, and, you know, reinvent yourself. I mean, I've reinvented myself so many times. I mean, you know, when we were musicians, we were on the second, the Lyricist Lounge. It's a two-album thing. Mm-hmm. We're on the second one, the one with Cool Keith. All of the music you okay. hear behind Cool Keith was our band. You know, it's like, you know, it's we, we toured Germany for like 30 days, like with a tour bus of just us and models. You know, like, I mean, we've lived so many things and done so many awesome, amazing things. And it's like, and it's all been because of being a free thinker and self-sufficiency and being creative, using creativity, not just to paint a painting, but to figure out how to pay your rent without having to have a job and, you know, obviously not breaking the law. You know, like, you know, intelligence <laughs> is a real world thing. It, it makes your life better. Intelligence is not to sit up there and pontificate. It's to be able to be agile and move nimbly throughout your environment, you know? So, yeah. Are you satisfied creatively? Oh, no. Definitely not. But I'm satisfied with my ability to satisfy myself, you know? There's never enough time, you know? There's always something else I want to read or or experience or do. You know, I have two children, you know, so I'm, I'm not satisfied, but I'm very happy. What would be your dream project if you could wave a magic wand and you had the the funds and the resources and the time, what would you want to do? I'd like to do something with like with Apple or it's kind of a two tiered kind of thing. I say like with Apple because I want to do something on that scale, but I want to do it where it is empowering. My whole dream, and I've always been really into like artificial life and artificial intelligence and these kind of things and self-generating systems where, which is what a social network is. I mean, Twitter is a perfect example of something that's basically alive. I mean, Twitter's alive. It's not alive by itself. It's alive because all these people interact with it. So I'm really into those kind of things. Doing something on that scale that, well, if I could get funding for this political thing to make it on the level where I could get, you know, 5 million people actually using it, <laughs> with the guy where I could get it to the point where all of the representatives had accounts with this system. And if somebody tagged, flagged them and sent them a comment, they would get it on the floor. They, it would be sent to their official iPad where they were taking it seriously, where they're the same way they get Twitter accounts they were getting, you know, and, and maybe go through Twitter, it doesn't matter, but getting 5 million people actively connected to their political representatives, that would be my dream project. Yes. You know, so I guess really if I could work with like 18F, 18F is a company that mm. Obama set up where they're basically trying to um, make the government more efficient. So using Silicon Valley kind of like techniques and Scrum and Agile and these kind of things and to make government things better. So it's easy to fill out forms online and these kind of things. So that would be my dream to work on something. And, you know, for the government, sure. I mean, you know, because the government is the people. Like people always forget that. The government is is just the people. So I'd love to do something like that for the people. Yes. I believe 18F is still hiring right now. They are. They are. However, I work somewhere. It's tricky. It's tricky because usually they do like two to three year stints, one to three year stints. It's not like they're hiring full time. So it's like to give up something where, you know, the company that I work for is amazing. I mean, we've got all these other companies with us. We're completely international. Three months ago, my family and I, we were in Paris. You know, we stopped by the publicist's office in, you know, right next to the Arc de Triomphe. It's the place I'm at right now is really amazing. They're very good to their people. They're very forward thinking. So it would take a lot to move me from that. But yes, I am aware of ATF, very much so. And I'm, okay. I'm actually really impressed that you are too, sir. A lot of people <laughs> do not know about that. Yeah, ATF, U.S. Digital Service. Yes, yes uh, man. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, when I saw that Fast Company, I pulled it up like quicker than finding some new Star Wars. I mean, I, it, I was so <laughs> – the last time I could remember being that excited about something political was Cory Booker getting his Senate seat. Mm-hmm. You know, because 
Cory Booker. Oh my God, this dude is amazing. Oh, I didn't mention Cory Booker. I don't know him personally. I, I speak with him on Twitter here and there, but he okay. is the most amazing person in the Senate. Dude is, is Stanford. He is brilliant, <laughs> brilliant brother. You know, the, the work he did in Newark and now he's a senator. Again, I'll remind you, there are only two black senators, <laughs> two black senators. One is Republican, one is Democratic. You know, it's like, I'm so excited about that, that I actually speak with Tim Scott every now and then because I, yeah, I'm not a Republican, but I support him just to be like, hey, look, Republicanism or Democrat, neither one of them is all right or wrong. I'm a critical thinker. I just want to have a discussion with people. You know, I don't limit it myself with anyone. I'll talk to a Nazi, bro. I mean, you know, I, I'd like to have support so he doesn't kill me or anything, but I welcome that, <laughs> that chance to speak to someone with a completely opposite view of me as long as we can have a debate because mm -hmm. I love that. I think you should always keep your – well, not I'm not going to become a Nazi, but you know, I, what I'm saying is especially with our political process, the two sides have to – they have to speak to each other. And with Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House, things could get better. I mean I'm not, I don't support Paul Ryan, but I think he's not crazy. And with a lot of Republicans, they're crazy. So when they're not crazy, I'm, even though I don't agree with you, I'm very excited about Paul Ryan. I'm very excited of someone who's not completely crazy. I didn't like his, his budget and all of that, but I think there's some kind of sensibility in the man. Mm -hmm. You know, which was the same thing with Boehner. There was some sensibility in the man. I mean, they were, they're, they're not complete lunatics. All, pretty much everyone, everyone running for the, the, the GOP POTUS nomination, half of them, more than half of them, I could squarely put into the bracket of just lunatic. Like, I'm willing to listen to anything, but at a certain point, it's like, wait, you're not even sane. What are you talking about? What? That's the hill you're going to die on? Like, the gay thing, it's over. It's done. Well, who cares? Come on. The abortion? Chill, son. You know, do, do you really think a woman is skipping into an abortion clinic to have an abortion? That's insane. <laughs> There's nothing that black and white. If you right. are so against abortions, make the world a better place to bring up children. Why don't you do it that way, bro? Instead of bombing a clinic... Make it a better place because then then there'll be more children and less abortions. But, you know, it's yeah. So that kind of thinking bothers me. It really bothers me. Be creative and, and be constructive like the abortion thing. You're, you're against abortion. OK, go at it from a positive way. Don't show people pictures of fetuses that have been mutilated. Support time off for parents or daycare. That's like 7-Eleven. <laughs> that's, you know, regulated that you could just make it easier for you. You know, I mean, think outside the box, man. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? World domination, baby. That's what I'm... No, I'm sorry. I was quoting the Wu-Tang. <laughs> I... Well, hopefully, what I said was my big dream of this political thing. And, you know, basically being in a... I have no idea. I have no idea. I have these projects in mind. Like I said, my wife's book just came out. She's doing the film thing with um, Teen Egg. We have friends. We're all kind of, you know... We're trying to change the world. We're trying to make better. So I, in five years, I see myself making more better. You know, to quote Spike Lee, shout out to Chirac. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that in five years, I see my I see more of the same, more of the same man, on a bigger level. And being able to reach out to you and do this podcast has been awesome. man. That's definitely helped me get to where I want to be. Cool. Well, yeah. Well, just to kind of wrap things up, then where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? You can go to blackskymedia.com. But, you know, that's really kind of a portfolio, pretty old, nothing big there. Let's reach out to me on Twitter, at Ethos1970. So that's E-T-H-O-Z-1970. Reach out to me there. All right. Sounds good. Well, Mario Moorhead, thank you again for taking time out of your day. Yeah. This has been a really interesting interview. I have to say, I have talked to over 150 designers, and this is probably the first interview that has really kind of kept me on my toes. So... I, thank you for that. <laughs> thank you, sir. Thank you. Touche. 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 Uh, 18F. Well, you, you got me with that. I was like, whoa. All right. <laughs> but no, I mean, it's, it's good because, you know, a lot of what designers do, I feel like, could use a little bit of shaking up. Yes. In a way. Yes. You know, yes. it can be so easy to use our skills for things which are pretty ephemeral in the grander sense of things. Like, Well, that's the problem. Yeah, that's the problem with art. That's the problem with art. art artists yeah. get caught up in chasing their own tail and their own bullshit. And it's like, you know, and it's, it's interesting because we had some friends come over and we just recently rewatched uh, Mo Better Blues. And there's the part uh -huh. where Wesley Snipes' character is arguing with Denzel Washington's character, basically the two jazz players that whereas one is like, you know, our people don't even want to hear our music anymore. And the other guy's like, man, you grandiose motherfucker. You playing this stuff. If you play something they want to hear, then, they would, you know, so it comes mm -hmm. down to that. What you do needs to matter. 
like it's nice to just have art where it's like a cotton ball in the middle of a three quarter grid and then there's a 12 page description of why it means something as to something where it actually means something you know so we yeah. want to balance ourselves and and we have a, a duty to society i mean the world is not a, is far from a perfect place so i mean that's what inspires our art so i don't know maybe some artists don't want a better world because then they won't have any inspiration anyway i don't know so yeah it's good that we're able to kind of use our our talents for things that are not just a website or or something like no, that absolutely. Um, and, and like you said, you know, a lot of these things, you know, technology and art and music, all, all of this is combined. It's like all in the same pot in a way. So it's all the same thing. Yeah. Well, again, man, thank you again yeah. for coming on. This was a really good interview. And yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, man. Thoughts of love are and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Mario Moorhead and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Mario and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks as always to our sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. When it comes to email marketing, MailChimp makes it simple. They have great in-depth reporting, new and improved autoresponder features, and you can send 12,000 emails to 2,000 subscribers for absolutely free. No contracts and no credit card required. Check them out at MailChimp.com. Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domain. Just search for a few keywords and Hover will show you the best available options across all the domain extensions out there. Ready to get started? Save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code REVISIONPATH at checkout. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. Make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a rating and a review. It really helps us get new listeners. I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit us over at Patreon and become a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge your support. Pledge level start at just $1 per month and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.